Chapter 2 of Morton Hall by Elizabeth Gaskell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. From Household Words, number 192. Up to this time, we had felt it rather impertinent to tell each other of our individual silent wonder as to what Miss Phyllis lived on. But I know in our hearts we each thought about it, with a kind of respectful pity for her fallen low estate. Miss Phyllis, that we remembered like an angel for beauty, and like a little princess for the imperious sway she exercised, and which was such sweet compulsion that we had all felt proud to be her slaves. Miss Phyllis was now a worn, plain woman, in homely dress, tending towards old age, and looking, at that time I dared not have spoken so insolent a thought, not even to myself, but she did look as if she had hardly the proper nourishing food she required. One day I remember Mrs. Jones, the butcher's wife, she was a drumble person, saying in her saucy way that she was not surprised to see Miss Morton so bloodless and pale, for she only treated herself to a Sunday dinner of meat, and lived on slop and bread and butter all the rest of the week. Ethelinda put on her severe face, a look that I'm afraid of to this day, and said, Mrs. Jones, do you suppose Miss Morton can eat your half-starved meat? You do not know how choice and dainty she is, as becomes one born and bred like her. What was it we had to bring for her only last Saturday from the grand new butchers in Drumble, Biddy? We took our eggs to market in Drumble every Saturday, for the cotton spinners would give us a higher price than the Morton people, the more fools they. I thought it rather cowardly of Ethelinda to put the story-telling on me, but she always thought a great deal of saving her soul, more than I did, I'm afraid, for I made answer, as bold as a lion, two sweetbreads at a shilling apiece, and a four-quarter of house lamb at eighteen pence a pound. So off went Mrs. Jones in a huff, saying, their meat was good enough for Mrs. Donkin, the great mill-owner's widow, and might serve a beggarly Morton any day. When we were alone, I said to Ethelinda, I am afraid that we shall have to pay for our lies at the great day of account. And Ethelinda answered very sharply, She's a good sister in the main. Speak for yourself, Biddy. I never said a word. I only asked questions. How could I help it if you told lies? I'm sure I wondered at you, how glib you spoke out what was not true. But I knew she was glad I told the lies in her heart. After the poor squire came to live with his aunt, Miss Phyllis, we ventured to speak a bit to ourselves. We were sure they were pinched, they looked like it. He had a bad hacking cough at times, though he was so dignified and proud, he would never cough when anyone was near. I have seen him up before it was day, sweeping the dung off the roads to try and get enough to manure the little plot of ground behind the cottage, which Miss Phyllis had let alone but which her nephew used to dig in and till. For, said he, one day, in his grand slow way, he was always fond of experiments in agriculture. Ethelinda and I do believe that the two or three score of cabbages he raised were all they had to live on that winter, besides the bit of meal and tea they got at the village shop. One Friday night I said to Ethelinda, It is a shame to take these eggs to Drumble to sell, and never to offer one to the squire on whose lands we were born. She answered, I've thought so many a time. But how can we do it? I, for one, dare not offer them to the squire, and as for Miss Phyllis, it would seem like impertinence. I'll try at it, said I. So that night I took some eggs, fresh yellow eggs from our own pheasant hen, the like of which there were not for twenty miles round, and I laid them softly after dusk, on one of the little stone seats in the porch of Miss Phyllis's cottage. But alas, when we went to market at Drumble early the next morning, there were my eggs, all shattered and splashed, making an ugly yellow pool in the road just in front of the cottage. I had meant to have followed it up by a chicken or so, but I saw now that it would never do. Miss Phyllis came now and then to call on us, she was a little more high and distant than she had been when a girl, and we felt we must keep our place. 
I suppose we had affronted the young squire, for he never came near our house. Well, there came a hard winter, and provisions rose, and Ethelinda and I had much ado to make ends meet. If it had not been for my sister's good management, we should have been in debt, I know, but she proposed that we should go without dinner, and only have a breakfast and tea, to which I agreed, you may be sure. One baking day, I had made some cakes for tea, potato cakes we call them. They had a savoury hot smell about them, and to tempt Ethelinda, who was not quite well, I cooked a rasher of bacon. Just as we were sitting down, Miss Phyllis knocked at our door. We let her in. God only knows how white and haggard she looked. The heat of our kitchen made her totter, and for a while she could not speak. But all the time she looked at the food on the table, as if she feared to shut her eyes, lest it should all vanish away. It was an eager stare, like that of some animal, poor soul. If I durst, said Ethelinda, wishing to ask her to share in our meal, but being afraid to speak out. I did not speak, but handed her the good hot buttered cake, on which she seized, and putting it up to her lips as if to taste it, she fell back in her chair, crying. We had never seen a Morton cry before, and it was something awful. We stood silent and aghast. She recovered herself, but did not taste the food. On the contrary, she covered it up with both her hands, as if afraid of losing it. "'If you'll allow me,' said she, in a stately kind of way, to make up for our having seen her crying, "'I'll take it to my nephew.' And she got up to go away. But she could hardly stand for very weakness, and had to sit down again. She smiled at us, and said she was a little dizzy, but it would soon go off. But as she smiled, the bloodless lips were drawn far back over her teeth, making her face seem somehow like a death's head. "'Miss Morton,' said I, "'do honour us by taking tea with us this once. The squire, your father, once took a luncheon with my father, and we are proud of it to this day.' I poured her out some tea, which she drank. The food she shrank away from, as if the very sight of it turned her sick again. But when she rose to go, she looked at it with her sad, wolfish eyes, as if she could not leave it, and at last she broke into a low cry, and said, "'Oh, Bridget, we are starving for want of food. I can bear it. I don't mind. But he suffers. Oh, how he suffers! Let me take him food for this one night.' We could hardly speak. Our hearts were in our throats and the tears ran down our cheeks like rain. We packed up a basket and carried it to her very door, never venturing to speak a word, for we knew what it must have cost her to say that. When we left her at the cottage, we made her our usual deep courtesy, but she fell upon our necks and kissed us. For several nights after, she hovered round our house about dusk, but she would never come in again and face us in candle and firelight much less meet us by daylight. We took our food to her as regularly as might be, and gave it to her in silence, and with the deepest courtesies we could make. We felt so honoured. We had many plans now she had permitted us to know of her distress. We hoped she would allow us to go on serving her in some way, as became us as side-bottoms. But one night she never came. We stayed out in the cold, bleak wind, looking into the dark for her thin, worn figure, all in vain. Late the next afternoon, the young squire lifted the latch and stood right in the middle of our house-place. The roof was low overhead and made lower by the deep beams supporting the floor above. He stooped as he looked at us and tried to form words, but no sound came out of his lips. I never saw such gaunt woe. No, never. At last he took me by the shoulder and led me out of the house. "'Come with me,' he said, when we were in the open air, as if that gave him strength to speak audibly. I needed no second word. We entered Miss Phyllis's cottage, a liberty I had never taken before. 
what little furniture was there, it was clear to be seen, were cast-off fragments of the old splendour of Morton Hall. No fire, grey wood ashes lay on the hearth. An old settee, once white and gold, now doubly shabby in its fall from its former estate. On it lay Miss Phyllis, very pale, very still, her eyes shut. "'Tell me,' he gasped, "'is she dead? I think she is asleep, but she looks so strange, as if she might be—' He could not say the awful word again. I stooped and felt no warmth, only a cold, chill atmosphere seemed to surround her. "'She is dead,' I replied at length. "'Oh, Miss Phyllis, Miss Phyllis!' and like a fool I began to cry. But he sat down without a tear, and looked vacantly at the empty hearth. I dared not cry any more when I saw him so stony sad. I did not know what to do. I could not leave him, and yet I had no excuse for staying. I went up to Miss Phyllis, and softly arranged the grey ragged locks about her face. I said he, she must be laid out who's so fit to do it as you and your sister children of good old robert sidebottom oh my master i said this is no fit place for you let me fetch my sister to sit up with me all night and honour us by sleeping at our poor little cottage i did not expect he would have done it but after a few minutes silence he agreed to my proposal I hastened home, and told Ethelinda, and both of us, crying, we heaped up the fire, and spread the table with food, and made up a bed in one corner of the floor. While I stood ready to go, I saw Ethelinda open the great chest in which we kept our treasures, and out she took a fine holland shift that had been one of my mother's wedding shifts, and seeing what she was after, I went upstairs and brought down a piece of rare old lace, a good deal darned to be sure, but still old Brussels point, bequeathed to me long ago by my godmother, Mrs. Dawson. We huddled these things under our cloaks, locked the door behind us, and set out to do all we could now for poor Miss Phyllis. We found the squire sitting just as we left him. I hardly knew if he understood me, when I told him how to unlock our door, and gave him the key, though I spoke as distinctly as ever I could, for the choking in my throat. At last he rose and went, and Ethelinda and I composed her poor thin limbs to decent rest, and wrapped her in the fine holland shift, and then I plaited up my lace into a close cap to tie up the wasted features. When all was done, we looked upon her from a little distance. A Morton to die of hunger, said Ethelinda solemnly. We should not have dared to think that such a thing was within the chances of life. Do you remember that evening when you and I were little children, and she, a merry young lady, peeping at us from behind her fan? We did not cry any more. We felt very still and awestruck. After a while I said, I wonder if, after all, the young squire did go to our house. He had a strange look about him. If I dared, I would go and see. I opened the door. The night was black as pitch, the air very still. I'll go, said I, and off I went, not meeting a creature, for it was long past eleven. I reached our house. The window was long and low, and the shutters were old and shrunk. I could peep between them well, and see all that was going on. He was there, sitting over the fire, never shedding a tear, but seeming as if he saw his past life in the embers. The food we had prepared was untouched. Once or twice, during my long watch, I was more than an hour away, he turned towards the food, and made as though he would have eaten it, and then shuddered back. But at last he seized it and tore it with his teeth, and laughed and rejoiced over it like some starved animal. I could not keep from crying then. He gorged himself with great morsels, and when he could eat no more, it seemed as if his strength for suffering had come back. He threw himself on the bed, 
and such a passion of despair I never heard of, much less ever saw. I could not bear to witness it. The dead Miss Phyllis lay calm and still. Her trials were over. I would go back and watch with Ethelinda. When the pale grey morning dawn stole in, making us shiver and shake after our vigil, the squire returned. We were both mortal afraid of him. We knew not why. He looked quiet enough. The lines were worn deep before. No new traces were there. He stood and looked at his aunt for a minute or two. Then he went up into the loft above the room where we were. He brought a small paper parcel down, bade us keep on our watch yet a little time. First one and then the other of us went home to get some food. It was a bitter black frost. No one was out who could stop indoors, and those who were out cared not to stop to speak. Towards afternoon the air darkened, and a great snowstorm came on. We durst not be left, only one alone. Yet, at the cottage where Miss Phyllis had lived, there was neither fire nor fuel. So we sat and shivered, and shook till morning. The squire never came that night, nor all next day. "'What must we do?' asked Ethelinda, broken down entirely. "'I shall die if I stop here another night.' We must tell the neighbours and get help for the watch. So we must, said I, very low and grieved. I went out and told the news at the nearest house, taking care, you may be sure, never to speak of the hunger and cold Miss Phyllis must have endured in silence. It was bad enough to have them come in and make their remarks on the poor bits of furniture, for no one had known their bitter straits, even as much as Ethelinda and me and we had been shocked at the bareness of the place. I did hear that one or two of the more ill-conditioned had said it was not for nothing we had kept the death to ourselves for two nights, that to judge from the lace on her cap there must have been some pretty pickings. Ethelinda would have contradicted this, but I bade her let it alone. It would save the memory of the proud Mortons from the shame that poverty is thought to be and as for us, why, we could live it down. But on the whole people came forward kindly. Money was not wanting to bury her well, if not grandly as became her birth, and many a one was bidden to the funeral who might have looked after her a little more in her lifetime. Among others was Squire Hargreaves from Bothwick Hall over the moors. He was some kind of far-away cousin to the Mortons, so when he came, he was asked to go chief mourner in Squire Morton's strange absence, which I should have wondered at the more if I had not thought him almost crazy when I watched his ways through the shutter that night. Squire Hargreaves started when they paid him the compliment of asking him to take the head of the coffin. "'Where is her nephew?' asked he. "'No one has seen him since eight o'clock last Thursday morning.' "'But I saw him at noon on Thursday,' said Squire Hargreaves with a round oath. "'He came over the moors to tell me of his aunt's death "'and to ask me to give him a little money to bury her "'on the pledge of his gold shirt-buttons. "'He said I was a cousin and could pity a gentleman in sore need, "'that the buttons were his mother's first gift to him "'and that I was to keep them safe, "'for some day he would make his fortune and come back to redeem them. "'He had not known his aunt was so ill.' or he would have parted with these buttons sooner, though he held them as more precious than he could tell me. I gave him money, but I could not find in my heart to take the buttons. He bade me not to tell of all this, but when a man is missing, it is my duty to give all the clue I can. And so their poverty was blazoned abroad, but folk forgot it all in the search for the squire on the moorside. Two days they searched in vain, the third, upwards of a hundred men, turned out, hand in hand, step to step, to leave no foot of ground unsearched. They found him, stark and stiff, with Squire Hargreaves' money and his mother's gold buttons, safe in his waistcoat pocket. And we laid him down by the side of his poor Aunt Phyllis. After the squire, John Marmaduke Morton, 
had been found dead in that sad way on the dreary moors, the creditors seemed to lose all hold on the property, which indeed, during the seven years they had had it, they had drained as dry as a sucked orange. But for a long time no one seemed to know who rightly was the owner of Morton Hall and lands. The old house fell out of repair, the chimneys were full of starlings' nests, the flags in the terrace in front were hidden by the long grass, the panes in the windows were broken, no one knew how or why, for the children of the village got up a tale that the house was haunted. Ethelinda and I went sometimes in the summer mornings, and gathered some of the roses that were being strangled by the bindweed that spread over all, and we used to try and weed the old flower-garden a little. But we were no longer young, and the stooping made our backs ache. Still, we always felt happier if we cleared, but ever such a little space. Yet we did not go there willingly in the afternoons, and left the garden always long before the first slight shade of dusk. We did not choose to ask the common people. Many of them were weavers for the drumble manufacturers, and no longer decent hedges and ditches. We did not choose to ask them, I say, who was Squire now, or where he lived. But one day a great London lawyer came to the Morton Arms, and made a pretty stir. He came on behalf of a General Morton, who was Squire now, though he was far away in India. He had been written to, and they had proved him heir, though he was a very distant cousin, farther back than Sir John, I think. And now he had sent word they were to take money of his that was in England, and put the house in thorough repair, for that three maiden sisters of his, who lived in some town in the north, would come and live at Morton Hall till his return. So the lawyer sent for a drumble builder, and gave him directions. We thought it would have been prettier if he had hired John Cobb, the Morton builder and joiner, he that had made the squire's coffin, and the squire's father before that. Instead came a troop of drumble men, knocking and tumbling about in the hall, and making their jests up and down all those stately rooms. Ethelinda and I never went near the place till they were gone, bag and baggage. And then, what a change! The old casement windows with their heavy leaded panes, half overgrown with vines and roses, were taken away, and great staring sash windows were in their stead. New grates inside, all modern, new-fangled and smoking, instead of the brass dogs which held the mighty logs of wood in the old squire's time. The little square turkey carpet under the dining-table, which had served Miss Phyllis, was not good enough for these new Mortons. The dining-room was all carpeted over, peeped into the old dining-parlour, that parlour where the dinner for the Puritan preachers had been laid out, the flag-parlour as it had been called of late years. But it had a damp earthy smell, and was used as a lumber-room. We shut the door quicker than we had opened it. We came away disappointed. The hall was no longer like our own honoured Morton Hall. After all, these three ladies are Mortons, said Ethelinda to me. We must not forget that. We must go and pay our duty to them as soon as they have appeared in church. Accordingly we went, but we had heard and seen a little of them before we paid our respects at the hall. Their maid had been down in the village. Their maid, as she was called now, but a maid of all work she had been until now, as she very soon let out when we questioned her. However, we were never proud, and she was a good honest farmer's daughter, out of Northumberland. What work she did make with the Queen's English! The folk in Lancashire are said to speak broad, but I could always understand our own kindly tongue, whereas, when Mrs. Turner told me her name, both Ethelinda and I could have sworn she said Donna, and were afraid she was an Irishwoman. Her ladies were what you might call past the bloom of youth. Miss Sophronia, Miss Morton properly, was just sixty. Miss Annabella, three years younger, and Miss Dorothy, or Baby, as they called her, when they were by themselves, was two years younger still. 
Mrs. Turner was very confidential to us, partly because I doubt not she had heard of our old connection with the family, and partly because she was an arrant talker, and was glad of anybody who would listen to her. So we heard the very first week how each of the ladies had wished for the east bedroom, that which faced the northeast, which no one slept in in the old squire's days. But there were two steps leading up into it, and said Miss Sophronia, she would never let a younger sister have a room more elevated than she had herself. She was the eldest, and she had a right to the steps. So she bolted herself in for two days, while she unpacked her clothes, and then came out, looking like a hen that has laid an egg, and defies anyone to take that honour from her. But her sisters were very deferential to her in general, that must be said. They'd never had more than two black feathers in their bonnets, while she had always three. Mrs. Turner said that once, when they thought Miss Annabella had been going to have an offer of marriage made to her, Miss Sophronia had not objected to her wearing three that winter. But when it all ended in smoke, Miss Annabella had to pluck it out, as became a younger sister. Poor Miss Annabella! She had been a beauty, Mrs. Turner said and great things had been expected of her. Her brother the general and her mother had both spoilt her rather than cross her unnecessarily, and so spoil her good looks, which old Mrs. Morton had always expected would make the fortune of the family. Her sisters were angry with her for not having married some great rich gentleman, though as she used to say to Mrs. Turner, how could she help it? She was willing enough, but no rich gentleman came to ask her. We agreed that it really was not her fault, but her sisters thought it was, and now that she had lost her beauty, they were always casting it up, what they would have done if they had had her gifts. There were some Miss Burrells they had heard of, each of whom had married a lord, and these Miss Burrells had not been such great beauties. So Miss Sophronia used to work the question, by the rule of three, and put it in this way. If Miss Burrell, with a tolerable pair of eyes, a snub nose and a wide mouth, married a baron, what rank of peer ought our pretty Annabella to have espoused? And the worst was, Miss Annabella, who had never had any ambition, wanted to have married a pure curate in her youth, but was pulled up by her mother and sisters, reminding her of the duty she owed to her family. Miss Dorothy had done her best. Miss Morton always praised her for it. With not half the good looks of Miss Annabella, she had danced with an honourable at Harrogate three times running, and even now she persevered in trying, which was more than could be said of Miss Annabella, who was very broken-spirited. I do believe Mrs. Turner had told us all this before we had ever seen the ladies. We had let them know, through Mrs. Turner, of our wish to pay them our respects, so we ventured to go up to the front door and rap modestly. We had reasoned about it before, and agreed that if we were going in our everyday clothes, to offer a little present of eggs, or to call on Mrs. Turner, as she had asked us to do, the back door would have been the appropriate entrance for us. But going, however humbly, to pay our respects and offer our reverential welcome to the Miss Mortons, we took rank as their visitors, and should go to the front door. We were shown up the wide stairs, along the gallery, up two steps into Miss Sophronia's room. She put away some papers hastily as we came in. We heard afterwards that she was writing a book, to be called The Female Chesterfield, or letters from a lady of quality to her niece. And the little niece sat there in a high chair, with a flat board tied to her back, and her feet in stocks on the rail of the chair, so that she had nothing to do but listen to her aunt's letters, which were read aloud to her as they were written, in order to mark their effect on her manners. I was not sure whether Miss Sophronia liked our interruption, but I do know little Miss Cordelia Manesty did, "'Is the young lady crooked?' asked Ethelinda, during a pause in our conversation. I had noticed that my sister's eyes would rest on the child, although by an effort she sometimes succeeded in looking at something else occasionally. 
No, indeed, ma'am, said Miss Morton, but she was born in India, and her backbone has never properly hardened. Besides, I and my two sisters each take charge of her for a week, and their systems of education, I might say non-education, differ so totally and entirely from my ideas that when Miss Manesty comes to me, I consider myself fortunate if I can undo the <coughs> that has been done during a fortnight's absence. Cordelia, my dear, repeat to these good ladies the geography lesson you learnt this morning. You learnt this morning? Poor little Miss Manesty began to tell us a great deal about some river in Yorkshire, of which we had never heard, though I dare say we ought to, and then a great deal more about the towns that it passed by, and what they were famous for. And all I can remember, indeed, could understand at the time, was that Pomfret was famous for Pomfret cakes, which I knew before. But Ethelinda gasped for breath before it was done. She was so nearly choked up with astonishment. And when it was ended, she said, Pretty dear, it's wonderful. Miss Morton looked a little displeased and replied, Not at all. Good little girls can learn anything they choose, even French verbs. Yes, Cordelia, they can. And to be good is better than to be pretty. We don't think about looks here. You may get down, child, and go into the garden, and take care you put your bonnet on, or you'll be all over freckles. We got up to take leave at the same time, and followed the little girl out of the room. Ethelinda fumbled in her pocket. Here's sixpence, my dear, for you. Nay, I'm sure you may take it from an old woman like me, to whom you've told over more geography than I ever thought there was out of the Bible. For Ethelinda always maintained that the long chapters in the Bible, which were all names, were geography, and though I knew well enough they were not, yet I had forgotten what the right word was, so I let her alone, for one hard word did as well as another. Little Miss looked as if she was not sure if she might take it, but I suppose we had two kindly old faces, for at last the smile came into her eyes, not to her mouth. She had lived too much with grave and quiet people for that, and looking wistfully at us, she said, Thank you, but won't you go and see Aunt Annabella? We said we should like to pay our respects to both her other aunts if we might take that liberty, and perhaps she would show us the way. But at the door of a room she stopped short and said, sorrowfully, I mayn't go in. It is not my week for being with Aunt Annabella. And then she went slowly and heavily towards the garden door. That child is cowed by somebody, said I to Ethelinda, but she knows a great deal of geography. Ethelinda's speech was cut short by the opening of the door in answer to our knock. The once beautiful Miss Annabella Morton stood before us and bade us enter. She was dressed in white, with a turned-up velvet hat, and two or three short, drooping black feathers in it. I should not like to say she rouged, but she had a very pretty colour in her cheeks. That much can do neither good nor harm. At first she looked so unlike anybody I had ever seen, that I wondered what the child could have found to like in her, for like her she did, that was very clear. But when Miss Annabella spoke, I came under the charm. Her voice was very sweet and plaintive, and suited well with the kind of things she said. All about charms of nature, and tears and grief, and such sort of talk, which reminded me rather of poetry, very pretty to listen to, though I never could understand it as well as plain comfortable prose. Still, I hardly know why I liked Miss Annabella. I think I was sorry for her, though whether I should have been if she had not put it in my head, I don't know. The room looked very comfortable. A spinet in a corner to amuse herself with, and a good sofa to lie down upon. By and by we got her to talk of her little niece. She too had her system of education. She said she hoped to develop the sensibilities, and to cultivate the tastes. While with her, her darling niece read works of imagination and acquired all that Miss Annabella could impart of the fine arts. 
we neither of us quite knew what she was hinting at at the time but afterwards by dint of questioning little miss and using our own eyes and ears we found that she read aloud to her aunt while she lay on the sofa santo sebastiano or the young protector was what they were deep in at this time and as it was in five volumes and the heroine spoke broken english which required to be read twice over to make it intelligible it lasted them a long time she also learned to play on the spinet not much for i never heard above two tunes one of which was god save the king and the other was not but i fancied the poor child was lectured by one aunt and frightened by the other's sharp ways and numerous fancies she might well be fond of her gentle pensive miss annabella told me she was pensive so i know i am right in calling her so aunt with her soft voice and her never-ending novels and the sweet scents that hovered about the sleepy room no one tempted us towards miss dorothy's apartment when we left miss annabella so we did not see the youngest miss morton this first day we had each of us treasured up many little mysteries to be explained by our dictionary mrs turner who is little miss manesty we asked in one breath when we saw our friend from the hall and then we learnt that there had been a fourth a younger miss morton who was no beauty and no wit and no anything so miss sophronia her eldest sister had allowed her to marry a mr manesty and ever after spoke of her as my poor sister jane she and her husband had gone out to india and both had died there and the general had made it a sort of condition with his sisters that they should take charge of the child or else none of them liked children except miss annabella miss annabella likes children said i then that's the reason children like her i can't say she likes children for we never have any in our house but miss cordelia but her she does like dearly poor little miss said ethelinda does she never get a game of play with other little girls and i am sure from that time ethelinda considered her in a diseased state from this very circumstance and that her knowledge of geography was one of the symptoms of the disorder for she used often to say i wish she did not know so much geography i'm sure it is not quite right whether or not her geography was right i don't know but the child pined for companions a very few days after we had called and yet long enough to have passed her into miss annabella's week i saw miss cordelia in a corner of the church green playing with awkward humility along with some of the rough village girls who were as expert at the game as she was unapt and slow i hesitated a little and at last i called to her how do you do my dear i said how come you here so far from home she reddened and then looked up at me with her large serious eyes aunt annabel sent me into the wood to meditate and and it was very dull and i heard these little girls playing and laughing and i had my sixpence with me and it was not wrong was it ma'am i came to them and told one of them i would give it to her if she would ask the others to let me play with them but my dear they are some of them very rough little children and not fit companions for a morton but i'm a manesty ma'am she pleaded with so much entreaty in her ways that if i had not known what naughty bad girls some of them were i could not have resisted her longing for companions of her own age as it was i was angry with them for having taken her sixpence but when she told me which it was and saw that i was going to reclaim it she clung to me and said oh don't ma'am you must not i gave it to her quite of my own self so i turned away for there was truth in what the child said but to this day i have never told ethelinda what became of her sixpence i took miss cordelia home with me while i changed my dress to be fit to take her back to the hall and on the way to make up for her disappointment i began talking of my dear miss phyllis and her bright pretty youth i had never named her name since her death to any one but ethelinda and that only on sundays and quiet times and i could not have spoken of her to a grown-up person 
but somehow to Miss Cordelia it came out quite natural. Not of her latter days, of course, but of her pony and her little black King Charles dogs, and all the living creatures that were glad in her presence when first I knew her. And nothing would satisfy the child, but I must go into the hall garden and show her where Miss Phyllis's garden had been. We were deep in our talk, and she was stooping down to clear the plot from weeds, when I heard a sharp voice cry out, Cordelia, Cordelia, dirtying your frock with kneeling on the wet grass. It is not my week, but I shall tell your Aunt Annabella of you. And the window was shut down with a jerk. It was Miss Dorothy, and I felt almost as guilty as poor little Miss Cordelia, for I had heard from Mrs. Turner that we had given great offence to Miss Dorothy by not going to call on her in her room that day on which we had paid our respects to her sisters, and I had a sort of idea that seeing Miss Cordelia with me was almost as much of a fault as the kneeling down on the wet grass. So I thought I would take the bull by the horns. Will you take me to your Aunt Dorothy, my dear? said I. The little girl had no longing to go into her Aunt Dorothy's room, as she so evidently had to Miss Annabella's room. On the contrary, she pointed it out to me at a safe distance, and then went away in the measured step she was taught to use in that house, where such things as running, going upstairs two steps at a time, or jumping down three, were considered undignified and vulgar. Miss Dorothy's room was the least prepossessing of any. Somehow it had a northeast look about it, though it did face direct south, and, as for Miss Dorothy herself, she was more like a Cousin Betty than anything else. If you know what a Cousin Betty is, and perhaps it is too old-fashioned a word to be understood by anyone who has learnt the foreign languages. But when I was a girl, there used to be poor crazy women rambling about the country, one or two in a district. They never did any harm that I know of. They might have been born idiots, poor creatures, or crossed in love. Who knows? But they roamed the country, and were well known at the farmhouses, where they often got food and shelter for as long a time as their restless minds would allow them to stay in any one place. And the farmer's wife would, maybe, rummage up a ribbon or a feather, or a smart old breadth of silk, to please the harmless vanity of these poor crazy women. And they would go about, sober dizened sometimes, that, as we called them always Cousin Betty, we made it into a kind of proverb for anyone dressed in a flyaway showy style, and said they were like a Cousin Betty. So now you know what I mean that Miss Dorothy was like. Her dress was white, like Miss Annabella's, but instead of the black velvet hat her sister wore, she had on, even in the house, a small black silk bonnet. This sounds as if it should be less like a Cousin Betty than a hat, but wait till I tell you how it was lined, with strips of red silk, broad near the face, narrow near the brim, for all the world like the rays of the rising sun, as they are painted on the public house sign, and her face was like the sun, as round as an apple, and with rouge on, without any doubt. Indeed, she told me once, a lady was not dressed unless she had put her rouge on. Mrs. Turner told us she studied reflections a great deal, not that she was a thinking woman in general, I should say, and that this rayed lining was the fruit of her study. She had her hair pulled together so that her forehead was quite covered with it, and I won't deny that I rather wished myself at home, as I stood facing her in the doorway. She pretended she did not know who I was, and made me tell all about myself. And then it turned out she knew all about me, and she hoped I had recovered from my fatigue the other day. What fatigue? asked I, immovably. Oh, she had understood I was very much tired after visiting her sister's. Otherwise, of course, I should not have felt it too much to come on to her room. She kept hinting at me in so many ways that I could have asked her gladly to slap my face and have done with it. Only I wanted to make Miss Cordelia's peace with her for kneeling down and dirtying her frock. I did say what I could to make things straight, but I don't know if it did any good. 
Mrs. Turner told me how suspicious and jealous she was of everybody, and of Miss Annabella in particular, who had been set over her in her youth because of her beauty. But since it had faded, Miss Morton and Miss Dorothy had never ceased pecking at her, and Miss Dorothy worst of all. If it had not been for little Miss Cordelia's love, Miss Annabella might have wished to die. She did often wish she had the smallpox as a baby. Miss Morton was stately and cold to her, as one who had not done her duty to her family, and was put in the corner for her bad behaviour. Miss Dorothy was continually talking at her, and particularly dwelling on the fact of her being the older sister. Now she was but two years older, and was still so pretty and gentle-looking, that I should have forgotten it continually but for Miss Dorothy. The rules that were made for Miss Cordelia. She was to eat her meals standing. That was one thing. Another was that she was to drink two cups of cold water before she had any pudding, and it just made the child loathe cold water. Then there were ever so many words she might not use. Each aunt had her own set of words which were ungenteel or improper for some reason or another. Miss Dorothy would never let her say red. It was always to be pink or crimson or scarlet. Miss Cordelia used at one time to come to us and tell us she had a pain at her chest, so often that Ethelinda and I began to be uneasy, and questioned Mrs. Turner to know if her mother had died of consumption. And many a good pot of currant jelly have I given her, and only made her pain at the chest worse. For, would you believe it, Miss Morton told her never to say she had got a stomach ache, for that it was not proper to say so. I had heard it called by a worse name still in my youth, and so had Ethelinda, and we sat and wondered to ourselves how it was that some kinds of pain were genteel and others were not. I said that old families like the Mortons generally thought it showed good blood to have their complaints as high in the body as they could. Brain fevers and headaches had a better sound, and did perhaps belong more to the aristocracy. I thought I had got the right view in saying this, when Ethelinda would put in, that she had often heard of Lord Toffy having the gout and being lame, and that nonplussed me. If there is one thing I do dislike more than another, it is a person saying something on the other side, when I am trying to make up my mind. How can I reason if I am to be disturbed by another person's arguments? But though I tell all these peculiarities of the Miss Mortons, they were good women in the main. Even Miss Dorothy had her times of kindness, and really did love her little niece, though she was always laying traps to catch her doing wrong. Miss Morton I got to respect, if I never liked her. They would ask us up to tea, and we would put on our best gowns, and taking the house-key in my pocket, we used to walk slowly through the village, wishing that people who had been living in our youth could have seen us now, going by invitation to drink tea with the family at the hall, not in the housekeeper's room, but with the family, mind you. But since they began to weave in Morton, everybody seemed too busy to notice us. So we were fain to be content with reminding each other how we should never have believed it in our youth that we could have lived to this day. After tea, Miss Morton would set us to talk of the real old family whom they had never known. And you may be sure we told of all their pomp and grandeur and stately ways. But Ethelinda and I never spoke of what was to ourselves like the memory of a sad, terrible dream. So they thought of the squire in his coach and four as high sheriff, and madam, lying in her morning-room in her Genoa velvet wrapping-robe, all over peacock's eyes. It was a piece of velvet the squire brought back from Italy when he had been the grand tour, and Miss Phyllis going to a ball at a great lord's house, and dancing with a royal duke. The three ladies were never tired of listening to the tale of splendour that had been going on here, while they and their mother had been starving in genteel poverty up in Northumberland. And as for Miss Cordelia, she sat on a stool at her Aunt Annabella's knee, her hand in her aunt's, and listened open-mouthed and unnoticed 
to all we could say. One day the child came crying to our house. It was the old story. Aunt Dorothy had been so unkind to Aunt Annabella. The little girl said she would run away to India and tell her uncle, the general, and seemed in such a paroxysm of anger and grief and despair that a sudden thought came over me. I thought I would try and teach her something of the deep sorrow that lies awaiting all at some part of their lives, and of the way in which it ought to be borne, by telling her of Miss Phyllis's love and endurance for her wasteful handsome nephew. So, from little, I got to more, and I told her all, the child's great eyes filling slowly with tears, which brimmed over and came rolling down her cheeks, unnoticed as I spoke. I scarcely needed to make her promise not to speak about all this to anyone. She said, I could not, no, not even to Aunt Annabella. And to this day she never has named it again, not even to me. But she tried to make herself more patient and more silently helpful in the strange household among whom she was cast. By and by, Miss Morton grew pale and grey and worn, amid all her stiffness. Mrs. Turner whispered to us that for all her stern, unmoved looks, she was ill unto death, that she had been secretly to see the great doctor at Drumble, and he had told her she must set her house in order. Not even her sisters knew this, but it preyed upon Mrs. Turner's mind, and she told us. Long after this, she kept up her week of discipline with Miss Cordelia, and walked in her straight, soldier-like way about the village, scolding people for having too large families, and burning too much coal, and eating too much butter. One morning she sent Mrs. Turner for her sisters, and while she was away, she rummaged out an old locket made of the four Miss Morton's hair, when they were all children and threading the eye of the locket with a piece of brown ribbon, she tied it round Cordelia's neck, and kissing her, told her that she had been a good girl, and had cured herself of stooping, that she must fear God and honour the king, and that now she might go and have a holiday. Even while the child looked at her in wonder at the unusual tenderness with which this was said, a grim spasm passed over her face, and Cordelia ran in a fright to call Mrs. Turner. But when she came, and the other two sisters came, she was quite herself again. She had her sisters in her room alone when she wished them good-bye, so no one knows what she said or how she told them, who were thinking of her as in health, that the signs of near-approaching death, which the doctor had foretold, were upon her. One thing they both agreed in saying, and it was much that Miss Dorothy agreed in anything, that she bequeathed her sitting-room, up the two steps, to Miss Annabella, as being next in age. Then they left her room, crying, and went both together into Miss Annabella's room, sitting hand in hand, for the first time since childhood, I should think, listening for the sound of the little handbell, which was to be placed close by her in case, in her agony, she required Mrs. Turner's presence. But it never rang. Noon became twilight. Miss Cordelia stole in from the garden, with its long black-green shadows, and strange eerie sounds of the night wind through the trees, and crept to the kitchen fire. At last Mrs. Turner knocked at Miss Morton's door, and hearing no reply, went in and found her cold and dead in her chair. I suppose that some time or other we had told them of the funeral the old squire had, Miss Phyllis's father, I mean. He had had a procession of tenantry half a mile long to follow him to the grave. Miss Dorothy sent for me to tell her what tenantry of her brothers could follow Miss Morton's coffin. But what, with people working in mills, and land having passed away from the family, we could but muster up twenty people, men and women and all. And one or two were dirty enough to be paid for the loss of their time. Poor Miss Annabella did not wish to go into the room up two steps. 
nor yet dared she stay behind. For Miss Dorothy, in a kind of spite for not having had it bequeathed to her, kept telling Miss Annabella it was her duty to occupy it, that it was Miss Sophronia's dying wish, and that she should not wonder if Miss Sophronia were to haunt Miss Annabella if she did not leave her warm room, full of ease and sweet scent, for the grim northeast chamber. We told Mrs. Turner we were afraid Miss Dorothy would lord it sadly over Miss Annabella, and she only shook her head, which, from so talkative a woman, meant a great deal. But just as Miss Cordelia had begun to droop, the general came home, without anyone knowing he was coming. Sharp and sudden was the word with him. He sent Miss Cordelia off to school, but not before she had had time to tell us that she loved her uncle dearly, in spite of his quick hasty ways. He carried his sisters off to Cheltenham, and it was astonishing how young they made themselves look before they came back again. He was always here, there and everywhere, and very civil to us, into the bargain, leaving the key of the hall with us whenever they went from home. Miss Dorothy was afraid of him, which was a blessing, for it kept her in order, and really I was rather sorry when she died. And, as for Miss Annabella, she fretted after her till she injured her health, and Miss Cordelia had to leave school to come and keep her company. Miss Cordelia was not pretty. She had too sad and grave a look for that. But she had winning ways, and was to have her uncle's fortune some day, so I expected to hear of her being soon snapped up. But the general said her husband was to take the name of Morton, and what did my young lady do but begin to care for one of the great mill-owners at Drumble, as if there were not all the lords and commons to choose from besides? Mrs. Turner was dead, and there was no one to tell us about it, but I could see Miss Cordelia growing thinner and paler every time they came back to Morton Hall and I longed to tell her to pluck up a spirit and be above a cotton-spinner. One day, not half a year before the general's death, she came to see us, and told us, blushing like a rose, that her uncle had given his consent, and so, although he had refused to take the name of Morton, and had wanted to marry her without a penny, and without her uncle's leave, it had all come right at last and they were to be married at once. And their house was to be a kind of home for her Aunt Annabella, who was getting tired of being perpetually on the ramble with the general. "'Dear old friends,' said our young lady, "'you must like him. I am sure you will. He is so handsome and brave and good. Do you know, he says a relation of his ancestors lived at Morton Hall in the time of the Commonwealth.' "'His ancestors?' said Ethelinda. Has he got ancestors? That's one good point about him at any rate. I didn't know cotton spinners had ancestors. What is his name? asked I. Mr. Marmaduke Carr, said she, sounding each R with the old Northumberland burr, which was softened into a pretty pride and effort to give distinctiveness to each letter of the beloved name. Carr, said I, Carr and Morton, be it so. It was prophesied of old. But she was too much absorbed in the thoughts of her own secret happiness to notice my poor sayings. He was and is a good gentleman, and a real gentleman too. They never lived at Morton Hall. Just as I was writing this, Ethelinda came in with two pieces of news. Never again say I am superstitious. There is no one living in Morton that knows the tradition of Sir John Morton and Alice Carr. Yet the first part of the hall the Drumble Builder has pulled down is the old stone dining parlour where the great dinner for the preachers mouldered away, flesh from flesh, crumb from crumb, and the streets they are going to build right through the rooms through which Alice Carr was dragged in her agony of despair at her husband's loathing hatred is to be called Carr Street. And Miss Cordelia has got a baby, a little girl, and writes in pencil two lines at the end of her husband's note to say she means to call it Phyllis. 
Phyllis Carr. I am glad he did not take the name of Morton. I like to keep the name of Phyllis Morton in my memory, very still and unspoken. End of Morton Hall by Elizabeth Gaskell